Podcast Guys has a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where... A historian... And the literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Are hills just full of eggs? So, what's got Knox Ox? And why are the stewards numbered in reverse order of importance? Well, it is callow. They probably put their weird, dirty, deviant mounts above basic necessities there. The best revenge isn't living well. It's living to crucify all your enemies. Dread Emperor Malevolent III. The pithy. Even though this chapter starts with an epigraph about crucifixion, it is a light and cheery time. We begin with a nice bonfire, and then the army marches into a city ready to welcome them with absence, and they win a city, and then there's a light show in the heavens. It's a pretty accurate summary, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you pretty much covered it all. Should we just call the episode there? I mean, that you pretty much hit all the high notes of the chapter. I guess so. Uh Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking to Radha Gareta, where we discuss... This chapter again, since we actually probably should. I feel like we might get some... We might end up with an angry email if we just skip this chapter. There's some There's some big stuff here, actually. It takes like an hour to record one of these. Not if we talk really fast. Okay, so it starts off with a bonfire, but by that I mean they're actually burning uh, Nilan's body because he's dead. See? That didn't take an hour. But they're not burning him with his armor on. Because you don't want to waste it, I assume. But keep that in mind, because I have a note on that. And as they're there, everybody's pretty sad. Orcs mm-hmm. are keeping it in somewhat, because they don't do open displays of emotion, because that dishonors the dead. And, you know, honestly, I'm not sure that's the healthiest thing on Earth, but I respect it. There are different ways of mourning. I come from a culture where wailing is not common at funerals, but... There are cultures where wailing is necessary at funerals, and I don't think that's a problem. It, I mean, yeah, it's it's how one interacts with mourning is uh, both very personal and, uh, you know, it, it's going to be individual, but there's also a lot of cultural pressures there for sure. Uh, you know, if I were in a culture that was big on loud displays of grief... That would be not my favorite thing in the world because of who I am as a person. And there's a there's a, a line there for sure. And uh, Pat kind of sees that here, the, the rub between individual grief and cultural grief uh, going on in her army, especially among the orcs. Nock is having a very hard time at that intersection because th- this is Nilan. This is a boy whom Catherine narrates he'd been close as a brother to and juniper is clearly judging him for that but i've got a lot of directions i feel on this i recognize the importance of cultural standards and just establishing a norm and also i recognize the need to be able to have room for those who transgress those boundaries but in Nock's case 
he had a very strong reaction last chapter when, if I recall correctly, he participated in some heterodontistry. Mm -hmm. But the red rage really complicates this because he can't control his emotions in the same way, maybe. But then we expect people who have emotional difficulties or difficulties adhering to our cultural emotional norms to figure it out anyway. And you do need to figure out how to handle your emotions. There's a lot. There's just a lot. And I think we need to be more generous in times of grief, Juniper. Someone's dead. I One do person. Understand. One I single do... person is dead. Right, exactly. I, I do get, like, I, I fully agree with what you're saying on all counts. This is a nuanced topic. And it's complicated by the fact that it's not as though the display of emotion is concerning for the orcs because it is dishonorable to the person displaying emotion in which case fine like not that's Nox's choice to be dishonored in the eyes of other orcs and juniper can disdain him for that if she chooses i guess it'd be it's a little weird but it's fine but where this is coming from is apparently that it is seen in orc culture here according to catherine at least as dishonoring to the dead and so juniper's grumpiness is maybe a, a result of her being upset that Nock is dishonoring those who died in the battle. And rather than control your emotions, you know, you're, you're making a fool of yourself. It's control your emotions. This is harmful to the, whatever, the memory of the people who have died here. And so it, it's, it's a, an offense given not to himself, but to other people. And that gives Juniper's reaction a bit more weight i think from an outside observer at least so i don't know it, it's definitely a tough one but it is very tough and yet catherine catherine herself has a lot of difficulty dealing with cultural heterogeneity there's no room for pluralism in her worldview or at least little room because when she sees juniper's disdain she just feels a flash of rage and what are you going to do about that how can you be like that how can you live with this kind of cultural with this indignation towards cultures when you command a host hailing from five different cultures fam yeah it i mean that that definitely adds to it from cat's perspective it's tough she hasn't said anything to juniper um because like you said she mentions here she's got five different cultures in her army they're different people are going to do things she does not like pretty frequently and she has to get used to that fact Adding to that complication, though, is that the place where those cultures rub up against each other or where that culture can rub up against individuals within it in a way like what's going on with Anak and Juniper here, that can affect her army's cohesion. That could have an actual effect on her army's ability to function. If Juniper's disdain for Nock results in a weakening of his morale or of his soldiers' morale when they see that their commander doesn't like their captain or, or lieutenant is that his role at this point sergeant whatever if juniper's disdain for her subordinate affects his subordinate's opinion of him that becomes an actual problem that catherine does have to step in and deal with in some way it's an erosion of Knox authority and so you know yes you have to be aware that you're in a place where there are five different cultures and there's going to be awkwardness but also you have one army and that army has to function. And so there's there's a lot of layers going on with this little interaction of Juniper glares at Nock sometimes and that makes Cat angry. Now if the army can deal with the fact that orcs literally eat people. Yeah, that's <laughs> fair. 
Now it says five cultures, and I just want to make sure our lists are the same. That's just Orc, Goblin, Soninke, Tagreb, and Kalowin, right? That's the list I had, yeah. And then she ignores the ogres because they're apparently below her notice. It would be weird to miss any of the other five based on percentages. Unless you lost Sonike and Tagreb into one. Right. Well, you kind of... Uh... I don't mean to erase their cultures, but there is a, I think there's something of an imperial culture that you can blend them into. Sure. It depends on what uh, level she's operating at. A cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. It depends on what level Kat's operating at. There's also the fact that just like statistically speaking, the ogres don't really affect the culture in the army very much in her in the 15th, at least like there aren't that many of them. Like if there were three Dooney in her army, I don't know what the number is. It'd be the same thing where she probably wouldn't mention them particularly. Also cat hates ogres because of Hewn. So like I said, below her, no- I'm sorry, above her notice. Well, most things are. <laughs> Oof. So apparently the funeral customs are foreign to her. But in praise, men and women could sign away rights to their bodies for gold, selling their dead flesh as materials for the corpse raisers to use in their work. And she says that that's an abomination by the standard she'd been raised to. But, you know, that's kind of nifty. Just mortgage your body. Yeah. I'm not against this. I would sign up for it. If you don't have a religious tradition that has any concern with the actual corpse once you're dead, which it seems like that's the case with the Pracy here. Great. I'll take money now and then you can have my meat when I'm done with it. I have signed away my organs for free. I'll take some cash. Yeah. But you can't do that if you're in the army because apparently signing away your corpse was against regulations. And I wonder why? Is it because the army might have use of your corpse? Is it because the logistics of, do the necromancers have enough sway to then try to get the corpses from the battlefield, putting a burden on the legion? I'm thinking it's probably a layered thing where I would wager that the concern is that a general, or even lower down, like a sergeant or a lieutenant, could be in the pocket of a necromancer, and if could, one... coerce people into agreeing to this and two could put the soldiers who have agreed to this who have contracted here in the front line in every single battle and then they take a cut of the proceeds or you know whatever I'm, i'm sure there's concerns because when you're dealing with paying for something involving death you want to keep that out of your military if you're trying to have a very disciplined military like black is that makes so much sense all speculation, of course, but... You know what doesn't make sense, however? Hmm. They put the Exiled Prince and the Equerry onto a... They make a little pyramid of bodies and mm-hmm. put Nilan on top. Uh, maybe a ziggurat of bodies. They say pyramid here. Okay. They make a pyramid of cataphracts and they put uh, the Exiled Prince and the Equerry on top and Nilan on top of them. But it says that the Exiled Prince and the Equerry are both still in full armor. And I'm sure they're both in the finest armor already. Even if it's maybe perforated or something now, whatever. But but also his he he's got magic armor, and even if that's not the best idea, that feels like a valuable item to even sell off or something. The problem is and, that's magic armor that puts crossbow bolts into necks rather than into chests or whatever. So you can sell it for a load of cash to somebody maybe, or it'd be fun at parties. You got to remember be crazy parties. This. These two, though, are tied up in Kat's mind with the death of her friend. She's already making bad tactical decisions because of Nilan's death. I 
don't think she's going to continue making great logistical decisions now at his funeral, you know? That's fair. And if she clears her head later, they can always recover it from the ashes, I bet. I don't think... Probably. The fancy armor... Oh, wait. Nock was the one to dip the torch in the still-burning goblin fire and toss it onto the stacks. Well, also, I I don't know. Burning the body in goblin fire, I'd just be afraid that it would eat the soul. I'd I'd honestly be worried about that. It's goblin fire. (laughs) Yeah, that does feel like a real concern. I mean, it even burns the... the air, which fire does normally, too. That the fire tetrahedron where it's oxygen it's a air is how fire hard to say how long the soul hangs around though yeah we probably won't see anyone using whatever window they have to raise a body with the soul still inside maybe their own body or something (laughs) sorry i i just have these flights of fancy uh standing here at the at the goblin fire pyre which by the way interesting choice i have to say um just you know Concerns over the armor or the soul or whatever aside, it feels like bringing in a fire you can't really control for a funeral where there's a lot of people around is questionable at best. But you have to keep stepping back as it grounds slowly. Uh (laughs) Um, But uh, Kat is standing there, and uh, her uh, her girlfriend shows up, and uh, we find out that Cassian is in fact a major nerd who has been hanging out with Nilin and trading books back and forth like a couple of nerds and uh you know cat's like the epitome of a jock you know like what what's going on with these two clicks mixing like this i don't i don't know if this were a, a teen movie that would be like the climax right here like these two getting together rather than something that happens just sort of as happenstance and i don't like it when these clicks mix is what i'm saying so this is just mean girls right exactly where the yeah you have the jock and the nerd girl Mm-hmm. So then we need a Regina George to come in and steal away, wait, steal away Catherine. So black. No, that's incest. Okay, so Ubwa, actually, kind of. Hold on. Wait, no. Yeah. Do you do you recall a certain party that took place in a certain tower where literally three, I don't know, high school, college age girls walk up to Cat and start like bullying her like a, you know, uh. <laughs> But in addition to her being a nerd, she also is just really hot when she's sad, apparently. I I think Catherine's sentiment is understandable. If you sure. see someone who you think is kind of cute, and then they have an emotion on their face, it's kind of cute. Cute people are cute, and when you're feeling it, you're feeling it. Great. But is there a more evil way to phrase this than Catherine's sentiment of grief looked pretty on her? Yeah, that's pretty like, rough. That's that you will not defy my will. I have... I have locked you in the tower. I have killed your lover who has come to save you. And grief looks pretty on you. We should cry more often. Right, exactly. There are so many things like her eyes were sparkling with the tears reflecting the fire. Sure, you could say something like that where it's like, okay, there's a nice artistic thing here. I'm recognizing the grief, but the mourning, you know, there's it sets a scene. But just grief looks pretty is very rough. Now, I'm sorry. I feel like you're the expert on this, but we do get an... I squeezed her hand, which involves a clenching motion. Sure, but we're missing a couple of things there for this to count. Um, First of all, intent. A finger clench is a result of excitement or of uh, concern, like a realization. This is just a reassuring lover's hand-holding thing. Also, it has to say clenched. We're very clear. It has to be a clench. 
I desperately hope that there is a forgotten finger clinch at some point. <laughs> because that would be beautiful. A little weird, but eh. <laughs> so is grief look pretty on her, Catherine. <laughs> Fair. So speaking of things that happened in this chapter. Oh. Every single member of the former rat company who'd made it into the 15th passed by at some point in the burning, many stopping by the flames to whisper something into the crackle. And apparently, according to Cassius Clay, they're giving Nilan a secret or promise, something to bargain with on the other side. Well, isn't that fun? E.E. talked to us personally when we had a conversation with him because we're such close friends, mm-hmm. about how pricey religion is such a personal, individual, and at biggest cultic phenomenon, because if you're a priest of the dark gods, there, there's a, there are a few hurdles in your way to becoming a popular speaker. Mm-hmm. And here's a moment of that quiet, personal, pricey religion. And I think that's so fun. This is a neat one, for sure. I, I, I really like this little little conversation here and i'm very glad i didn't turn my religious studies degree into actual anthropology because i think it would be perhaps a little inappropriate to start talking about how oh i think your funereal customs are so fun (laughs) though funereal customs are actually really fun think of your own culture's funereal customs my listeners they're fun it's really sad god bless but funerals are cool the funeral scene wraps up with Catherine revealing to the corpse of Nilan that she let the lone swordsman go, that it's her fault. And with her sort of leaving without meeting Nock's eyes, there's a, you know, maybe a bit of guilt going on there. Um, before we get a scene transition to uh, Marchford, uh, to Cat and a small group of soldiers walking around the questionably conquered city that is pretty much abandoned at this point, including by its physical defenses, not just its uh, soldierly soldierly defenses. I love the phrasing of abandoned for walls that have been brought down by sappers. (laughs) Yeah, the walls abandoned the city. (laughs) If they actually wanted to protect the city, they would have found a way to stay. You get it. But like, Every city, I assume, Marchford had once been defended by walls, and they were brought down by sappers during the conquest, but they hadn't bothered to remove the foundations. And I'm just curious, how were the walls brought down? They had to be brought down in a way that kept the foundation so it wasn't goblin fire, because even the foundations would have burned away. Oh, sure. It probably then wasn't a collapse-based thing, where they undermined the walls, literally mining under the walls. Now you know where that word comes from. I mean, so if you have a wall made of large stones, I don't. The easiest way to get rid of that wall, as far as like, if you have if you have muscle at your disposal but don't want to spend resources, then you stand on top of the wall and you push a rock off, and then you take the next rock and you push that one off, and you have other people carry those rocks away. Walls are very good defenses when they're manned, and when they are unmanned, they are just piles of rock, basically. I- I actually really enjoy how contextual a lot of defenses are. Like, remember when all the strings were pulled out of the horses during the battle? Mm -hmm. Those were just sharp pieces of wood standing still in front of them. And those are a horrifying and huge defense. And also, they're nothing. If I were walking down the street and you pointed those at me, I would walk around, rip to the horses. But I'm built different. I mean, 
There's a difference between walking and being at a dead sprint, to be fair, but yes. So whose side is Catherine even on? Great question. That's an obvious right answer. Her own. <laughs> right. But she is leading a Precy Legion into the city to stop Callow from gaining its independence. Ostensibly. Sort of. Ostensibly, <laughs> but... sort of, yes. <laughs> There's a lot. Uh, for more information, see the last 56 episodes of the podcast. 57, however many. And plus the, next... the interview, plus read the book. Plus the next 600 or so. Yeah, to get good. But she's upset. She has a moment. She takes a moment to walk through being upset at the Duke of Lees, their would-be king, because he is an exile who bailed without ever facing the legions on the field. And now he claims to have a right to the throne of Callow. And as she marches in to resubjugate Callow, she's mostly upset that the guy working that the guy who has positioned himself to be the beneficiary of its liberation didn't fight the people she's working for hard enough, or at all, back in the day. And she's just so Callowan in her hate, and I love her. You know, not to Obama a 9-11 Catherine here, but where was she when Praise was invading, you know? I don't think she has the right That's to... That's a good point. It's kind of a pot calling the kettle black, if you ask me. Where was Obama on 9-11? Exactly. Before we accidentally get political (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah heaven forbid they've tried to figure out what's going on with the silver spears and they've had a number of knights to do it but no scrying apparently because that'll come up later and according to catherine the prisoners they'd taken at the battle had yielded that the commander of the men at arms had apparently survived the massacre meaning the mercenaries still had someone to rally around and that's not useless information that means something but these are the guys they took at the battle, which means they don't know everything. For all they know, even if they saw the commander fleeing, maybe a crossbow bolt took him in the back. That's true. I'm sorry. I just andronormativityed all over the place. It took them in the back. Hashtag more non-binary war criminals. Yeah, uh, it, you. that's why you want to interview, sorry, interrogate a lot of prisoners to get a more complete, <laughs> well, you know <laughs> to get a more complete picture of what's going on and to hopefully fill in the details but yeah i i think they all know that the information they're getting from soldiers they captured in a battle they won recently oh and they won by let's see exploding people with goblin fire yeah they probably aren't going to get great information there but they don't need Great information, because they do have somebody who always makes the right choice forever and always, and that's mm-hmm. how you can beat her. Uh-oh. It turns out that uh, Juniper, though, has made a mistake. She predicted that the uh, Silver Spears would retreat to Marchford, and they didn't. Which means, of course, naturally, that somebody lied to her or her scouts failed to give her the most accurate information, because if she had the right information, she would not have said that. She would have accurately predicted where they ended up, of course. I don't know. If she made this mistake, she's probably no good and will never accomplish anything, and she should just go into, like, a fugue state for a few months in the middle of a campaign. Sure, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Can you imagine how bad that would be? <laughs> uh, do you know anything about, I don't know, cities before the Industrial Revolution? Uh, in, I mean, a bit, yeah. <laughs> what, are we, what are we looking for here? According to the Imperial Census, Marchford had a population of 10,000, though many of the residents only lived there temporarily. How how big is Marchford? I I come from a city of ten thousand, which mm-hmm. means I come from a small town. Uh, we don't even have walls. 
10,000 is not massive by any stretch of the imagination. Especially, I mean, I guess Callow is a pretty rural place. Like, obviously everywhere is. It's, you know, pre-industrial revolution here. It thinks gnomes. But Callow especially is the farming place. But 10,000 is, a, you know, not not big by any stretch of the imagination. I really this is would a, have assumed hmm? I would have assumed that Marchford would have been significantly larger than that. It's a county seat. Right. Which again m- meant something should mean something. Where I come from, there are plenty of counties with seats well below 10,000, but I'm from a rural state and we have a lot of counties and no counts. Explain that one. Yeah, I don't know if I can. And I don't know if Catherine can accurately talk about the limits of her powers because she can see Marchford Manor down the street and she says even to my name site the grounds of Marchford Manor were deserted and yeah her name site is better we know this Mm -hmm. but she doesn't have like special name site she's got super good site not super site yeah impossibly good site but not she doesn't have so there's this person named Indrani Uh, she's from the woods and she can see things. So that should contextualize this. Yeah, that was good. Thank you. I, I was really wondering where you were going with that. But then when you said that Indrani can see things, now I, I follow. Thank you. So what do you know about, you know, engineering before the Enlightenment? Uh, uh, not much. Yeah, you didn't know I was coming at you with these kinds of questions. Huh? I didn't realize I was going to get grilled this morning. Jeez. So they've got fountains of white chalkstone gurgling merrily. First of all, chalkstone, that sounds to me like you're going to have to replace those fountains a lot. Yeah, right? maybe. I, I, have, I don't know what chalkstone is at all, but I would guess, yeah. It has the word chalk in it. So therefore, it's bad stone, but pretty and dusty. But making a fountain, I assume they don't have pumps. So this has to rely on gravity, right? Or just on like a bunch of people under there pushing, pushing lifting the... Yeah, probably gravity. I know that this is a city in the hills. So I'm wondering... Is this a sign of what have the Precy ever done for us? Well, they built the aqueducts, and therefore there's a vulnerability to exploit if they had to take Marchford, which they don't. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how aqueducty Marchford in particular is, since uh, from I, I gather based on the name and some geographic descriptions in this chapter, there's a pretty nearby river, but yeah. Uh, maybe there are aqueducts specifically for the weird chalk fountains. I don't know how aqueducty Ma- Marchford is. Do you happen to know how aqueducty, I don't know, say Wolof is? Just off the top of my head? Off the top of your head? No, I have no idea. Uh, apparently there's hair there. A beautiful head of hair, in fact. But nothing and, else. And no aqueducts? I'm feeling. Uh, no, just a regular duck. Hmm. Well, I guess that means terrible danger. It is the official position of this podcast that waterfowl are frightening and should not be messed with. Oh, come on. Ducks are fine. Ducks are like the nice waterfowl. Like, obviously leave swans and geese alone, but ducks are fine. Try a game between a duck and a piece of white bread that's going to kill it because you shouldn't be feeding them that kind of stuff anyway. Why are you doing this? Yeah. What's <laughs> it going to do to you? Waddle at you? Make a weird noise? They make ducks great are, noises. Ducks are tiny. I actually, I'm very fond of duck noises. Oh, yeah. Ducks, ducks are great. and crows make great noises. Crows are better well, in every way. Yeah, cor- corvids are kind of the best birds. That's just sort of fact. And also duck anatomy concerns me, but I'm not getting into that on this podcast. Yeah, that's probably for the best. We are trying to avoid the explicit tag. 
So, corkscrewing to our next point. Wow. I'm very proud of myself. A lot of fantasy novels nowadays are based on the world's most popular role-playing game, which is based on Jolkin, Rolkin, Rolkin, Tolkien's, I think, Chronicles of Narnia or something. Mm-hmm. But I know that Practical Guide to Evil is not based on that game. And do you know how I know? How do you know? Because directly after the Chalkstone Fountains, we're told, Granite statues of stone knights guarded the last stretch to the manor gates, still smiles splitting their bearded faces. And at no point in this chapter do they come alive and try to kill everyone. Oh, that's actually a really good point. Yeah. Also, there's smiling knight statues, which I think is a really cool aesthetic choice. Because so often, almost, actually like, almost every statue I've encountered has either a serious, neutral, or anguished look on its face. Neutral can kind of lean towards, like, I don't know, nobility, you know, uh, looking out over the battlefield with calm pride or something, you know, that kind of thing, too. But yeah, yeah, you're you're pretty much right. Barring smiles split their faces. So these are toothy smiles, and I love it. Probably important to say, like, in the West, that's true. Like, that's in exactly the Ang- that I've encountered. You've never I've been... only been to the Eastern Hemisphere in a, f- a few times. That's Three? Fair. Four? And, but I have gone very far east, such as East Germany and Czechia. Hmm. I think the farthest east I've ever been is impossible to determine because we do live on a sphere. Oh, no. You, this is actually really easy. Look at a map. East ends. I have Googled a map. What map did you get? Uh, several of the U.S., but also some world maps. Uh, the farthest east I've ever been, I guess, is Athens. I have pulled up... When I search a map on DuckDuckGo, all 15 maps that I see from the beginning of the image search are world maps. And wow, there are, of the first 10, only 40% make Greenland look as big as Africa. They're not all indicator projections, but they're similar. Or of the first 12 that I see are of the US, not including sponsored, like selling me a map situation. It would be kind of cool to own a map or own a... I own lots of maps. I've drawn a lot of them. Oh, I own a bunch of maps. That's just, I thought you, people just owned maps. Isn't that just like a thing? Maybe if you're a boomer. I'm not, and I do own maps. Well, you're acting like one. Dear listener, this is an insult because other generations are bad, and it's a fight between generations. And please mm. don't pay attention to the class conflict that's actually underlying all troubles in our society. Farthest east I've been is actually Vienna, even though Czechia is much more Eastern Europe than Austria in most designations. Pretty much all. I would. It, there probably aren't too many people that consider Austria more Eastern European than Czechia. But I bet those people either have extremely cool or extraordinarily noxious views on so many things. Just extreme is what you're saying. Yeah. I do love extremism. I think it's pretty radical, but um, tish. So, Marchard Manor has glass windows. Okay. And now we get a cool piece of world building. Not colored stuff, though, so unlikely to be imported from Prosser. Apparently, stained glass comes from Prosser. There is a domestic glass production, but not domestic stained glass. While stained glass coming from Prosser is, in fact, a neat little piece of world building, it's also the least surprising bit of world building we've seen in a while. I don't know anything about the history of stained glass, but I do know my great uncle, who died somewhere around the age of 90 and was very tall. Did a lot of stained glass work in his life. And I admire that, because stained glass is cool. It's a vitreous mosaic. It is cool. yeah. And other than the architecture, Catherine also meets the leadership of the city, 
so to speak. Also, officially, kind of. Yeah, so many people have left that someone who is the fourth steward of the manor, not of anything outside of the manor, but just of the manor, is technically in charge of the entire city at this point. And that, I have to say, is a fun chain of command. It is kind of in the name steward, though. Yeah, of the... I I agree entirely. Yeah. (laughs) And this steward is the fourth steward, which means that he is, according to Catherine and himself afterwards, in charge of latrines. He's the sanitation steward, which is great because that means that as he is going to surrender the city to Catherine shortly, someone actually important, important to the functioning of the city is the one surrendering it rather than like, you know, the, the noble who collects taxes. So that's pretty cool. Probably the first of the important stewards for them then, because we don't know what the first and second steward are. Mm-hmm. The third is in charge of stables. The fourth is sanitation. So what are the first and second? Probably the first is going to be managing the household servants because right. we, the nobles, are more important than everyone, haha, or something. And the second steward, what, household goods? or? Yeah, I mean, it could easily be food or something like that, you know, or the so, grounds. So this is a steward who actually is responsible for the city in any way. Yeah. And I love him. Also, I do need to clarify. I said that the nobles, I, I was a little unfair. I said that the nobles you know, would be in charge of collecting taxes. And I, I'm i so sorry. They profit from the taxes. They have, you know, actual people to collect the taxes for them. Wait, what labor are they performing? <laughs> oh, good one. Now, I have a completely unanswerable and meaningless little legal question here, and that is, okay. can the steward surrender the county to Catherine? Is the county in need of being surrendered i i don't particularly care but so legally can are they he in a controlled city in an enemy county can he surrender the county is not really um i don't mean this in a dismissive way i mean in an explanatory way but it's not really a meaningful question because the county exists as an administrative uh category and nothing else really what you get when you take the county seat is that administrative... A really fancy chair. A really fancy chair. Uh, is that administrative network, you get the people who are in charge of the census and administering the taxes and collecting taxes and the people who... Really, that's what it really boils down to is who is collecting taxes and where do those taxes go. And Cat now is in control of the city that houses that apparatus. So by taking the city, she controls the county by default. He isn't handing over the county. He's handing over the administration group, the, the, the entity, the political entity. I don't, I don't know exactly how Callow's system works, but generally speaking, he, he's taking control of the ability to take taxes from people. And therefore, yeah, she's in charge of the county now. It, it, it kind of runs itself in a lot of ways that, in, that, in that sense. But more importantly, in this county, she's the... She, is the only person with an army and a government is the entity that has a monopoly on violence. So just by being here, she controls the county. How fun. Speaking of monopolies Mm -hmm. on violence, the steward actually can't guarantee that they retain that monopoly because he can't guarantee that the people will surrender. And so Catherine's got to put out heavy patrols. 
And then when she realizes that she delivers a sentence that if you just take the first half of the sentence or so, it's very concerning, extremely concerning. And then when you add the second half, it's still pretty concerning. She says, I didn't intend to order the massacre of fellow Callowans, but... What a fun conjunction. Uh-huh. That, that word, that but right there is doing so much heavy lifting because I didn't intend to order the massacre of fellow Callowans is already a rough sentence because if you put any amount of emphasis on intend... Things get real spicy real quickly. And then you throw that butt there at the end. And really what Kat's saying is, eh, if they die, they die. Well, you know, as Juniper taught her, civilians are there to die. Oh, no. Wait. <laughs> well, she'll be ready for the crusade. There you go. So I know Marchford isn't the biggest city. And I know that the Imperial structure has siphoned off some wealth and such. But nonetheless, there is the most, uh, yeah, sentence to start the next section after a little intersection break mm -hmm. countess elizabeth solar was almost decadently comfortable first of all it's a solar and if you have a room you call that yeah it's going to be decadently comfortable a parlor is going to be decadently comfortable oh hold on almost decadently not quite there i assume that the only almost is that it had been stripped of the more obvious signs of wealth and what yeah, i assumed were yeah. and what i assumed to be the most expensive paintings were missing but uh yeah, you're you know, probably right. I I am not untraveled, and I've gone to cool places. I have been in many theaters. I've been in many churches. I have been in a number of palaces. But I still think if I were in a solar, it would rank relatively well among all the rooms I've been in, especially considering many of the rooms I've been in have been things like gas stations and classrooms at a public university, hmm. which are great. By the way, anyone in the United States looking at options for colleges and universities, do a community college if you can. They're better for education unless you need the resources of the university. And see if you can get some of that out of the way with the community college first. They're uh, great. Right, uh, universities that aren't community colleges are also better if you just want to flex on the pores. So keep that in mind. Yeah, if you don't have an Ivy League degree, you're basically uneducated. Exactly. Education okay. here being a rank of individual value, not actually knowing stuff, because that's what well, other people are for. I appreciate you saying that, because those of us who are educated, you know, knew that already. But it's it's nice to explain that for everybody else. I Wait, I, I don't have an Ivy League degree. Ooh. I have been on an Ivy League campus. Oh, same. So, basically. And um, <laughs> just so there's no confusion here, nothing we have ever said is a joke. I, thank you for clarifying. I know that I laugh a lot, but it's sort of just like part of how I talk. Also, it's I don't know how much laughter. my laughter comes through on my mic, so. About 20%. Oh, boy. Hey, uh, listener, I laugh a lot. Uh, and I'm sorry that it doesn't come through because I have a very pleasant laugh. That's also about 20% true. Huh. So remember when they interviewed the prisoners? Sorry, interrogated? I do remember when they had just a friendly sit down with the, the the prisoners. Well, when they're discussing their stuff, when they're having a little, maybe not war council, their occupation council in the solar, Hewn says that they've interrogated some of the, I'm sorry, interview, I'm sorry, interrogated some of the locals, which is a concerning word choice. It's not sensibly the, peaceful. Mm -hmm, it's not the best choice of words that Hewn could have used. However, it may be an accurate one. No, if Hewn's the one who's 
giving this information. Perhaps Hewn or her ogres did that, and I don't care how nice they are. If an ogre asks me, hey, how was your day? My natural terror, because they are lords, will make it feel like an interrogation. And that's on me and my Straight. internalized biases against right. those who could crush me like a bottle cap. Pop, me, pop my head off like a bottle cap? I would, yeah, I don't. People don't normally crush bottle caps, but the other there's the other side of ogres things too, do. because the largest contingent, the ogres, probably weren't walking around and interviewing people. Sorry, interrogating people. However, you're exactly right. It would have felt like an interrogation. The people most likely to have been interrogating, though, are the smallest in stature, the contingent of the smallest in stature here. And uh, I think anytime a goblin asks a question, I would assume that I'm being interrogated or threatened so if a goblin asks you how your day is immediately take stock of the number of kidneys you have left i'm sorry I'm much... take stock of the number of kidney you have left i was gonna say i'm pretty much constantly just doing a mental checklist of the number of organs i have inside of me so we're good there i recently read and did not double check and will now promulgate on the internet via my extensive mm -hmm. reach via podcast and i that... fully support whatever you're about to say when you have a kidney transplant, they typically do not perform a nephrectomy with it, which is to say, they typically add a kidney into you without removing one, and you just get a bonus kidney. Huh. Seems kind of silly. Aren't kidneys, like, really expensive? A trade feels like the economical option. Yeah, but you've usually got a bad kidney, and then they probably have, like, systems to check that. Yeah, but, like, uh, if a good kidney is worth... Is it bad if I reveal that I know the rough market value of a kidney? Probably. If a we good all know kidney, it's six digits. Yeah. If a good kidney is worth six digits, then a bad kidney, what? I mean, $10,000 or something? It's still pretty good. I could do with another $10,000. Honestly, though. Wait, but I've got a good kidney. I've got two Ooh. good kidneys, to my knowledge. Dang. For now. Speaking of goblins. Ooh, I do like doing that. Uh, while they're hanging out in, in Marchford for a bit... Uh, Pickler offers to build some siege engines uh, because she sees an opportunity to do so and is going to leap on it instantly. Uh, and there's some back and forth. Juniper's not sure. They're too big. Catherine's kind of indifferent. And uh, Juniper frowns at the idea and says, dragging a trebuchet around would slow us on the march. And all I got to say is just let her get one ready, like get all the pieces tooled and machined and everything ready to go and on a cart. Like, come on, mom, let her have some fun. Give her a trebuchet. I don't know why Juniper is so opposed to Pickler winning her the war so much more easily. And it doesn't even have to be a trebuchet. Pickler suggests that they could have more mobile siege engines, like a ballista or a few scorpions. And from any other nation on the entirety of the continent, I would assume that when you say scorpion, you mean big wooden thing that shoots good. Mm -hmm. But from the Precy, I do want to leave open the possibility that this is some sort of actual scorpion where the goblins carry the eggs around and all they have to do is put them in the right conditions to hatch them and have giant scorpions that work at siege. Because, you know, Prece. Yeah, but in this context. Speaking of context, don't look at the text. Okay. We're going to play a guessing game. They're chatting, and then Masego interrupts. He says the words, Ladies and gentlemen, if I could have your attention. What speech tag would you give that? This he is a, verbed. This is a play-along-at-home kind of game, right? Because I did just read the chapter about an hour ago, so I do know what the verb is. 
Well, hopefully people at home have already played along because I'm still expecting you to answer with your best guess. And your best guess is going to be right. Yeah, my best guess is exclaimed. Isn't that a choice? Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if I could have your attention as an exclamation, I love this man. I get it. Like, if you're doing a polite... Or maybe boy. He's more of a boy. He's like, what, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20? That's an infant. The the verb here gives color to how that is. Because if you didn't have a verb and you just had him say, ladies and gentlemen, if I could have your attention, I would assume a polite announcement. But with exclaimed in there, it's, hey, I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, if I could have your attention as a, hey, I'm going to say something here quickly and excitedly. It's a, it, it, it's informing how this is being said, which is the purpose of a speech tag. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it works. He's, clearly not saying it to be polite he's saying the things that he's been told to say perhaps as a when sh- in this situation and really just wants to say something about his scrying that's going very well for now yes because he's got huge news probably the biggest news we'll get in this chapter mm-hmm. and certainly the biggest scry based news because Absolutely. he's spying on the silver spears hakram did kill the priest who is blocking their scrying all right and now Three days later that they bother to start scrying. Three days? A number of days. It's working, and that's great. And we're going to learn some cool stuff from this, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, killed the priest, they found the leadership, or he did, he found the leadership. It's fantastic. Oh, wait, hold on. The sound cuts out, and he's not too pleased about that. It shouldn't be happening. Oh, and then the picture cuts out, and suddenly, Black is here in the water. But, like, magically, he's not actually in the water. And wouldn't you just know it, he's concerned about an egg? Oh, no. Yep. Uh, that is a large ope, if I've ever seen one. This would be a great point to transition to talking about the hidden trans characters thing, but we're not doing that. There is no cut that all out. Oh, uh, yeah, it would have been. I do want to speculate here, which I know I'm not prone to doing, but if Black is cutting into a scrying done by Masego, does that mean he has Wakesa on hand? Probably, right? People who could interrupt that scrying. Wakesa, the dead king, maybe Aquia's dad. Are we back to our top five mages in Colonia discussion? We are, frankly. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the other side of this is we know that scrying works with sympathy. Like, we don't know a whole lot about it. It very well could be that if Black tries to scry Catherine, that will trump most other scrying things going on just by the nature of their relationship. That could be. But again, sheer speculation, probably with cases on hand. Yeah. But an interesting thing to think about. And mm-hmm. it's nice we had that because nothing else is happening, right? What were we talking about? Omelets or... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can't conquer a town without cracking an egg. Wait. So outside... Night has fallen, but there is no trace of stars. The sky was as red as fresh blood, and tendrils of scarlet were spreading through the moon. A faint scream was heard in the distance. It rose higher and higher and higher until all of us were clutching our ears in pain. The pressure winked out as suddenly as it had appeared, but something had changed. I looked at Masego. Something's happening, fam. Yeah. It's, uh, things are about to go down, because, according to, uh, Z's here, there is a demon on the loose, which is the end of the chapter, a phenomenal, we just get the announcement, there's a demon on the loose, and the chapter ends. Oh, come on, that's such a cliffhanger. Can we put the next episode right here at the end of this one so that people don't have to wait? 
We cannot, because unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Oh. Well, join us on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Red as we discuss... Risk. Oh. And chess. But not Parcheesi? Sorry. Wait in their blood. And or we could go with the childhood game. The floor is blood, so wait in it. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata as a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was The End of a Templar by Alban Go. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access a couple of posts. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and Liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fae Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below next week, a villainous interlude.